Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Creative Placemaking Podcast, powered by Local Initiative Support Corporation, LISC. I am your host, Jordan Carter, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Lynn McCormick. Together, we make up the Creative Placemaking Department at LISC. Thank you all for listening to our fifth podcast episode, and we appreciate you for joining us during this inaugural season. This podcast was created to honor folks using arts and culture to address systems of inequality and those developing creative methods of eradicating said systems. Today on the Creative Placemaking Podcast, we are elated to speak to Adrian Jefferson. Adrian is Director of New Haven, Connecticut's Art, Culture, and Tourism Department and has worked professionally in the arts and culture sector for over 16 years. For the past three years, she has served as an arts program manager for the state of Connecticut, where she's developed groundbreaking programs for the state of Connecticut, such as the Arts Workforce Initiative, which is a paid employment program that has placed over 100 young people between the ages of 18 to 40 in arts jobs across the state. She is also the creator and innovator of signature state programs, such as the Ready Music Conference and the Ready Talk Professional Development Series. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us today, and we're so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So as we chatted about before, we like to start the podcast with the affirmation freestyle. It's going to be a rapid fire frenzy of self-love, and I will show you how it goes. Then Lynn will follow. And then once she pauses, then you'll pick up and round it on out. Okay, sounds good. All right. So here I go. I am warm in my new fleece. I am feeling very optimistic about the Falcons winning the game on Sunday. I am happy for this conversation. I feel very well fed after this bacon, egg, and cheese omelet that I made myself. And I... (laughs) (laughs) I am am so glad that I voted yesterday and got in early. I am really happy because it's a sunny day. I am grateful for all of this conversation that's to come. I am overjoyed that Jordan is my partner in crime. I am... Maybe shouldn't have said that. Ah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I am happy because we just celebrated my daughter's birthday. She's now Yay. eight years old. I feel broke after paying for all of those gifts that I brought. <laughs> I feel joy and happiness and absolutely grateful for the opportunity to meet new people and to be able to talk about my passion, to be able to talk about culture. And I feel nothing but love radiance from me to you guys. Yes. We that feel beautiful. love too. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to just jump right in. You know, I read that you got your start in event planning and arts administration during your undergraduate years at Florida Memorial University while you were majoring in popular music. Now, that's an interesting major, to say the (laughs) least. So was the goal always to be an arts administrator when you were growing up or was being a pop star kind of the main thing? Yes, that's so funny because absolutely. The goal was for me to enter into the entertainment industry. I was going to be a writer for the music industry, a performer, (laughs) acting, doing cool work. So definitely the intention was to be a pop 
superstar, triple threat. That was definitely <laughs> the goal. Um, but what I found was I had just as much, if not more of a passion for helping other people cultivate their ideas and their talent and being able to shine a light on other people's um, gifts. And that I, I had a gift and a knack for being able to be able to pinpoint people's talent and really identify um, how people can go about cultivating that and um, creating that to the next level. So that's kind of how that happened um, in the mm -hmm. process of me being in the entertainment business and me being a performer, I, I found this other side. Um, was, there a, was there a moment where you were like, okay, I got to get out of this pop star lane and go straight to the arts administration lane? Or are no. you still driving in both? Yeah, it didn't happen quite like that. So what, what happened was my very first job. So when I moved to Miami, Florida to go to school, I was 17 years old. My mm -hmm. very first job was with the Mike Sherman show, which is a show that's affiliated with the WB, which used to be on UPN. So yes. my first job was as a production assistant in television. So I was already heavy into the entertainment industry. I was getting like hands-on experience and I was being paid for it. So I always had this, like these two things going on. I'm in school, but I've already found kind of like the career field I wanted to be in. So I was mm -hmm. very much already in that. And so as I was, Going through that, I realized that it wasn't enough for me to just be in entertainment. Because for me, I always have to do things that has a social purpose. And I knew it needed to be tied to more. So I ended up leaving that job um, probably after a couple of years. And a professor said to me, who realized that I had a knack and an interest in using hip hop and cultivating hip hop and being able to use that as a way to connect to the community and also being able to tell the story of culture and African diaspora. And she said, dude, you know, you have something really unique going on here. She said, instead of going to work for somebody else right away, take the time and create your own event, figure out what it is that you would like to do. And so I got the beginning of an administrative side, which really that's when you're putting on an event, that's highly administrative as well. Totally. And it really started from a professor who believed in me and said, you know, you really should start your own thing. And um, had she not done that, I probably would have stayed on the path of possibly trying to be in the entertainment industry and having more jobs. But um, my trajectory changed when I started to do those events. And then from that, I got another opportunity to go work with the youth in Overtown. And that's when it really changed from me being solely in the entertainment industry to being more in the nonprofit industry. Okay, and could you speak a little bit about that experience at Overtime with the youth? Was it, it was mainly the most arts? Incredible experience of my life. One of one of the most uh -huh. impactful experiences of my life. Um, you got to understand, Miami is a different place. It is um, highly cultural. Mm -hmm. It is um, a melting pot of all different types of people. And the Miami that they show you on TV is not the Miami that it actually is. Right? The there beaches, are palm trees. Yeah, it is, that's not it. I mean, there is beaches and palm trees, but you got kids who live 10 minutes from the beaches who've never been. And so when I went over to o Overtown, which is essentially the worst part of Miami, I was shocked at the poverty that I saw there. I was shocked at the how destitute people were living and the ability to work with those kids and to really be embedded in that community that I worked in for so long. Those became my people. It was an mm -hmm. eye-opening experience for me that really helped me be able to further my work 
and actually direct the, tra tra the trajectory of where my work would go. Um, but I fell in love with that community. And, and to this wow. day, those are my, those are my people. That's awesome. It sounds like you were really able to embed yourself within the community there. I was. Yeah. I was. I was in Miami for 12 years, which okay. is a very long time. And um, when I was in Miami, I was not in South Beach. <laughs> I was in Opalaka. I was in Miami Garden. I was in Carroll City. I was in um, Little Haiti. That's where I actually resided. And I was in Overtown. And those, if you look it up, that's where the I'm in the community. It's So I got the real Miami experience. And I, and I do feel like to this day, I feel like I am. And I told you this already when we talked offline, I feel very much like I'm from there because yes. I was there since 17 and everything that I established, my foundation came from Florida. Okay. So with that being said, what necessarily inspired the migration on up to Connecticut? <laughs> well, coming back to Connecticut. So I'm originally from Connecticut. Yeah. And my mom is here. My family is mm -hmm. here. Um, you know, I got brothers between here and in New York. So um, I, and then I had my daughter. So in Miami, I had my beautiful baby girl. And there were so many reasons to come back. One, my family was here mm -hmm. Two, you know, have getting help with my daughter would be, you know, great. And also, I got a job opportunity to start to snowbird to come back and forth between ah. the two places. So in 2013, I started to get contract work here in in um, Connecticut, and um, and I, I was loving what I was doing. I was being, I was in grad school at the time. I had my daughter, and it was just so convenient to be able to come work six months in New London, Connecticut, go back to home in Miami. And I was doing that for a couple of years, working for the Writers Block, and I fell in love with the work there, doing social change activism in the arts with young people. And I just said, you know, 2015 came around and there was an opportunity for me to come back and work as a full-time executive director. And um, of course, I took I took that opportunity. That's awesome. Yes. It's yeah. really interesting that you speak about traveling back and forth. Now, that's obsolete <laughs> with, the, with the current situation in the COVID and whatnot. But, you know, that was very, very... That is really interesting because I feel like if you as as long as you have those foundations there, you should still be able to touch those parts of your of your life as well. And it's awesome that you were able to have the opportunity to travel back and forth to make sure that those were still parts of you that you're still able to cultivate. Yeah, Certainly. absolutely. I'm for, forever connected to that community. And to be quite honest, I I'm still a dual resident. <laughs> I'm a resident here and there. I still have both my residencies. Um, and I've always seen myself going back and I actually always say, you know, I'm going to have a house here and a house there and I'll be that's able cool. to snowbird once again. You know, I will get back to a place where that's what I'm doing. Totally. Totally. So during your time at Florida Memorial, I also read that you were a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And for our listeners that don't know that is a, a predominantly African-American sorority and is a part of the divine nine that is really, really large in not just African-American colleges and universities, but also at PWIs as well, predominantly white institutions. And the connection and sisterhood that takes place in those sororities really... Um, 
take root during undergrad. And as I said, these are predominantly African-American types of organizations. So I'm curious to know, being in an arts administration field that is predominantly white, how has your membership in the sorority helped your professional aspirations? And when actually were you, uh, when actually did you cross? Because I also read that you attended SCAD my, in my home state of Georgia. I so did. I'm curious to know as well. Yes. Um, so I crossed spring 2007. Zeta Tau chapter, the deadly Zeta Tau chapter, to be clear, of uh, Miami, Florida, Florida Memorial University. Um, there was 19 of us. We called the immovable 19. Um, that prepared me. That that the crossing, the going through the process, um, and just building a sisterhood really prepared me for um, the world. <laughs> to be honest, there's a lot of things that I learned by being around very strong, empowered women that I've leaned on in my learnings as I'm moving forward in a, in a predominantly um, white-led sector, right? Um, so for me, it's not more so, because I'm not super active in Delta right now, because essentially I just don't have the time, if I'm being honest. Just don't have the time between my career and my daughter and um, other personal aspirations and things I'm, I'm working on. So I haven't been able to really connect as much as I want, but obviously I'm still connected with my, my line sisters. And so it really has taught me a lot about just sisterhood and black empowerment and how important it is to lift up other black women. Um, and so I'm able to always lean on those relationships. And so really awesome. it's more about it being this very strong support system and really the commitment, because a lot of people don't understand that with, with black Greek um, sororities and fraternities. This isn't about a social change commitment to the community. This is not even just about sisterhood or brotherhood. It's also about what we're going to do to activate change within um, systems, within the community, and um, what impact we're going to provide. So in that sense, it's done a lot for me um, with the work, because all of the work I've done is connected to that. Awesome. Wow. I've never heard it so eloquently connected all together as one that could start. I don't know in, if it's that eloquent. No, I, I, I see it in my brain, and I see, yeah, I see it. It was good enough for me, for sure. So with that being said, I'm sure you are a great asset, great resource to your line sisters as well as they are to you. So being that you have this new role as director in New Haven, that position for you started early early in the year but it was the craziest <laughs> year ever <laughs> yeah. so as the year is winding down and everything could you speak to some of the highs and lows of that role the new role absolutely i mean honestly it's just been a whirlwind um when i started i started february 3rd to be exact and that was mm -hmm. probably exactly a month before the world Boom. shut down Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Adrian, I'm just going to jump in for a second. Can you just say what your role is and what you're doing? Because I'm not sure we really, I mean, we, we introduced you, but I just, for our listeners, I want them to understand what your job actually is and, and what, what that looks like. Because a lot of folks don't even know what that job is. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, listen, that's real. That's real. And especially 
the role in New Haven, it hasn't been um, super, super public for a long time. But um, I am the director of arts and cultural affairs for the city of New Haven, um, also considered the director of arts, culture, and tourism. But really, um, the way we're rebranding the department, we are the Department of Arts and Cultural Affairs. Um, and so what I do is resp being responsible for the creative culture, arts, culture, and tourism in that sector in the city of New Haven, cultivating that sector, being able to work with artists, arts organizations, and residents to really be able to tap into um, arts equity and being able to tap into just um, vibrant, the vibrancy of the city. But really, our focus is on cultural equity right now. And we're really just looking at how we break down barriers to the arts so that everyone can really participate enjoy and work in the arts if they so choose to. So that's just a very brief, it's a lot, um, there's a lot of duties and things that we do, but that's just a very brief synopsis of the role. Okay. That's, that makes me want to ask, you know, how do you all define what cultural equity is in New Haven? Because that is um, mm -hmm. definitely slung around and Term. I just, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, so for me, cultural equity is not even just about the arts. Um, mm -hmm. In order to really understand, first of all, in order to tap into arts equity, that means we're going to tap into other aspects of inequities. So we need to be looking at transportation, mobility, healthcare, housing problems, uh, poverty issues. So it's really tapping into these inequities that get in, get in the way of people being able to have direct access to the arts. And so you cannot address arts equity or cultural equity without first addressing what the actual everyday, um, everyday mm. livelihood um, inequities are. And so for us, it's really going systemically into the issues, being able to address those issues the best that we can and then from there, being able to tap into arts equity so everyone has access. So I almost feel like there's two things happening at the same time, right? We are working on direct policies and reforms in the arts world that dismantle racist um, policies and practices. We are working directly with how we shift things to make it more equitable, while also dealing with the inequities that are happening in our most vulnerable populations and being able to make sure that we are mitigating the damage to that and finding solutions for that as well. So that's what, to me, when I say cultural equity, that's yes. what the work looks like. Um, it also means centering voices of color. It, it means centering black and brown people. It means providing space and opportunities, paid opportunities, seats at the table for those who often get overlooked. So it means disrupting the arts as we know it and really looking at culture and centering culture to be able to address these issues and activating arts as a mechanism for social change. Wow. You know, that extends far beyond my initial idea of what cultural equity means, because I oftentimes think of it as something on maybe a, this can be considered a bit of a surface level type of definition of it, but I think of it as um, how other cultures are deemed more highbrow or more sophisticated than um, than black culture. So I think of it as cultural equity being, you know, 
the rap and African dance class mm. costing the same amount as the ballet class at the dance at the arts uh, mm-hmm. organization at the local art center or something like that. Just these those little types of subtleties where you know it's a hundred dollars different. <laughs> so it's, it's that too, though. <laughs> it is that too, right? So yeah. and that's why I said you know so- simultaneous. So those are the policies I'm talking about. And a lot mm-hmm. of times people don't see those as policies. They think, you know, people's mind usually go to like uh, legislative matters or, you know, yeah. no, I'm talking about what are the things that people in power, the gatekeepers of arts organizations have at the tip of their fingers to create change right away. And it is what you just addressed, those type of inequities. We have yeah. to get our um, executive directors and leaders of these institutions to change their direct policies, to see them as policies and see themselves as gatekeepers that really could be upholding certain systems within their organization. So what you explained is a, is a great example of cultural inequity. <laughs> yeah, right? certainly. And why certainly. we need cultural equity. For sure, for sure. Adrian, as you were doing a plan for the equitable, for the cultural equity plan that you just finished up in New Haven, were there any big surprises that came up for you in that work? Well, we're still in it. We, we so... So kind of this ties back to what Jordan was asking me earlier about like the whirlwind we were in with the time frame of when I started. When I started, we said we were going to do the cultural equity plan. That was always going to be the case. But then the pandemic hit. So when the pandemic hit, we were pretty much told, stop everything you're doing, all hands on deck with um, the economic and, and resiliency recovery efforts for the city of New Haven. Now, what ended up happening is, and I thought that this was a beautiful thing that came out of the pandemic was seeing the need for the work that we do, seeing the need for arts and culture, seeing the need for equity and community well-being and um, mental health needs and dealing with trauma, especially from those in the hotspots area, areas, which happen to be the black and brown communities, right? So it was furthering my case on why we needed cultural equity in the first place. But with that said, we did the cultural equity work on the flip side. Instead of going right into a plan, we went into the direct response. And so we started to create programs like the Creative Sector Relief Funding Program, which really was centralized for um, low-income artists, many of whom are black and brown, right? The Arts for Anti-Racism pledge for the arts institutions to begin to dismantle racist policies and to decolonize their arts organizations. The Black Lives Matter murals, the um, rethinking public art through an anti-racism lens, right? All of this work came out of what we've seen out of the George Floyd situation and this 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 um, release of solidarity statements, right? Performance solidarity statements with no accountability tied to them. So True. we, the work we were already gonna do, which was gonna come out of the plan. We do the plan, we do the strategy, we adopt the programs. It happened the other way around. We said no. We need programs right now that are going to be responsive, that are going to mean something, and that are that that is going to change policies right now. That's going to change just through action. That's going to center black joy instead of black black trauma, right? So that's what we needed to focus on. So with that said, to answer your question, we are actually just now signing the contracts to actually begin the the, the physical plan of how we move forward but not just the programs that have been created over, you know, since in the midst of the pandemic and the race war and all of that, but also how we move forward once we get, you know, as, as we, as we move forward with the work. I'm curious to know 
what type of barriers come up in New Haven to getting that type of work done? <laughs> You're asking a very complicated question um, because what I will say is this, and I and I've and I found this to be true. New Haven is a very segregated city. Mm-hmm. There is, first of all, already a lot of culture that exists here. Um, 65% of the population are people of color. Okay, so there's a lot of a lot of culture, a lot of going on with that, and there, with that comes a lot of dynamics and a lot of different um, needs and wants and perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so I think what happens is those perspectives do not always meet in the middle and um, people disagree sometimes with the direction. You know, some people feel like, no, we should be focusing more on tourism and um, cultural art districts and getting people here into the city, you know, right? Other people feel like, no, we need to address inequity and really deal with what's going on in my direct community. And those things don't often meet together. And so mm-hmm. we get pulled in many different directions from from the residents, from our constituents who we serve on needs that are um, contradictory to each other sometimes. So, so that's what I would say if I had to try to put it in a way that's not getting into the details of different things. Perfect. That's, uh, that's, yeah. Okay. That definitely gives me, that rings true for a lot of other places as well. That is not just unique to New Haven. Uh, everybody is, has a different idea of what is right. Mm-hmm. Totally. There's Especially a right and wrong with way the to Black Lives Matter stuff. You know, we just did the mural on um, Temple and in Bassett Street, two Black Lives Matter murals. Mm-hmm. And while I would say probably a wide percentage was very happy and excited that we did this, yeah, there was other people that weren't so happy, felt like it was a political statement, felt like, yeah. you know, um, why is the city taking this stance? Not yeah. realizing we were not taking a political stance. We were just simply saying Black Lives Matter. Yeah. <laughs> they do, right? So there's that. Then you have other groups who are like, well, we want, you know, our own mural too. And and so it's it it becomes I found in this role, you have to just decide what you're going to stand for and stand by that at all times mm-hmm. and not and not shift on it. And so it's not everyone's not gonna be happy. It may not align with everyone else's goals. But I'm going to stick on the goal that I know that I was hired to do, which is cultural equity. And I'm going to do the work that aligns to that. You know what I mean? And, and that's just what it is. I can't please everybody. It's not possible, you know? Hmm. It's awesome that you're taking that such a strong stance in city government, for sure, because that, that absolutely is necessary for there to be real change and to be real buy-in from other people that have as much influence over municipal programming and initiatives that can fight for equity amongst races in a certain town or or city. So mm-hmm. that really, really is inspiring to hear for sure. Before, before you got into this specific role as director, you were heavily involved with the Ready Music Conference that is um, uh, Relevance, Equity, Access, Diversity, and Inclusion. Yes. And... That is uh, heavily tied into your youth work as well. So could you explain for our listeners how how that type of role led up to the director role? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Working at the state was, oh, that was transformative for me. Mm -hmm. I would just say that. So first of all, I never saw myself working in government, ever. You would ask me, 
do you have an interest in working in government? It would have been absolutely not because I found it limiting, restrictive, everything that I don't see myself as. Um, but I did have the opportunity to go over to the state. And I remember um, I almost had to be convinced to take the job by, by uh, mm. the person who hired me, Christina Newman Scott. She had to say, I promise to you that this is going to be something that's going to change your life. And if you think that you're doing empowering work now as an executive director for a small organization, wait until you see what you can do in the state. And I trusted her word and I got into the state and I was empowered by her. It's important to understand that Christina Newman Scott is a black woman who hired me. She was the first black woman as a director of culture for the state ever. And she had to open the door for me as the first black woman as a program manager in my role ever. So, so there, was a, there was a dynamic that happened there. And with that, she empowered me. And I was empowered in ways um, that I got the sense that other state workers may have not been empowered in the past um, mm -hmm. to, because they wanted something different. So they had this ready initiative, which you just stated, relevance, equity, access, diversity, and inclusion, which I believe is part of why I was hired because it was a part of their strategy of we need to be more inclusive, we need to be more diverse, and we need to start internally first. So we need somebody who reflects that and understands that work. So I came in already empowered to do that type of work and to look at the programs and say, what's missing here? Who's not being served? Why are we not serving them? And why do, not, why do I not see a reflection of myself in any program in the state, yet we are a state arts agency that says we serve everyone? So I just found it problematic. And I just said, okay, well, instead of complaining about it, we're going to create programs. And what we're going to do is create programs for young creative professionals, mostly that are black and brown. We're going to do it unapologetically. And we are going to find programs that connect and is relevant, culturally relevant to this community to give them professional development, free services, grant dollars and money, which there's a whole problem when it comes to grants. Um, the, in, the inequity in grants is mm. absolutely ridiculous. Um, I encourage everyone to look at inequity in the panel room. It, look at that document. It is, it is amazingly shocking. Um, but the point is, there, there are major gaps. And so I said, we're going to create these programs. Long story short, that's how um, the Ready Music Conference was birthed. That's how awesome. Ready Talks was birthed. We wanted to do something that was really going to be relevant to what I saw young black and brown people wanting to do. And, and a lot of them want to be in the entertainment industry. They want to, um, not that they don't want to do other things as well, but many of them were, are media artists. Many of them are artists themselves, performing artists. They want to be managers. They want to be in fashion. And so I just didn't understand why we didn't have something like that that spoke to them. And, um, wow. and that's why we created it. Could you explain how it, what it kind of looked like, what the uh, Ready Music Conference uh, looked like? It was so dope. It was so good. It was so good because it was not your regular conference. It's, and I'm going to send you videos if you haven't seen it, but it's pop culture, hip hop. Think of the Revolt Music Conference, the Revolt Conference yeah. that Diddy does, that vibe in Connecticut, which oh, is. Oh, wow. That's yes. Do you see what I'm saying? Very unheard of. Okay. Yes. Uh, um, yes. Think of South by Southwest on a way smaller scale. Wow. In cool. Connecticut. That's what, what the vibe of it I was. So we were bringing in industry level professionals. So we had 
so many different people. We've had people from Sony. We've had VP of Red Music. We've had Matt Wilds. We've had, I mean, just really major high-level guests come in and do panel sessions, talk sessions, workshops, and you have all of this for free. Usually this would cost somebody a lot of money to attend. Everything was free. People would come in and they would be able to interact and connect one-on-one with um, these high-level industry professionals and receive, you know, their own professional development. And then we would have performances in the middle. It was just a vibe. It was a it was a vibe. That's how it Wow. Went. You know, yeah. I think when you speak about that, I think about this quote Obama said, and Lil Wayne actually put this clip in the intro or outro of one of his songs, but Obama said, you know, everybody can't be the next uh, Kobe Bryant. Everybody can't be the next singer or rapper or be the next Lil Wayne or something like that. But I want to challenge that a little <laughs> bit, you know, because okay. while we can't be, I I am never, I, I just don't take well to the idea of someone's, supp- any type of suppression of something that'll bring you joy, especially something that's creative. Mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. something that creative and the stigma right now is for black advancement sometimes. And I've, I was hearing this back in middle school, like you, everybody's not going to be a rapper. Everybody's not going to be a football player and things like that. While that's true. While that is of course true. I mean, we, that's what we enjoyed at the same time. You know, that's what, that's what it is. That's what was fun. That's what mm. helped build stronger friendships that's what we bond over Mm -hmm. music sports as like young as young people and it's so it's really really discouraged for us to be further and further away from what gets us happy and gets us going at the root because it's being commodified so much Mm. by the adults that are doing it Mm. so it's really really so awesome for you to be talking about doing some entertainment stuff for youth because it's been discouraged for a long time and is continuously discouraged by people who want their children to do something that seems you know real well that's the thing (laughs) i think there's so much to unpack here you're saying so much i'm like oh i have a lot to unpack one i totally agree with you i feel like you know, one thing we do is work with parents as well when it comes to getting them to understand why young people actually should and can very well pursue a sustainable career in the arts. You need the parents to understand that it's not just you you don't have to necessarily just get on the mic and be a performer. There's a lot of different career fields within the arts that is sustainable. And you have to be able to to educate um the families on that as well. Um, But I totally agree with you as far as, you know, the dream killers almost like not everyone's going to be this. I feel like, you know, if you decide today that you want to pick up a mic and be a rapper, then you pick up a mic and be a rapper. And if you say that I'm, I'm a writer, if I wake up today and say I'm a writer and let's say I never really was a writer, who's to say I'm not a writer. Like you have to believe it in yourself first. And you have to be able to just say, you know, I don't care what anybody says, I'm going to pursue it. And that's what it is. But I just don't think that we have the right to put these labels on people and to box them in and say that they're not this. Now, will they necessarily, will everybody make it? Will everybody be the next little Wayne? Right. No. Uh, no. But but there's still, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's so important, especially for people in the black and brown community, young people to have an outlet in a way to be creative and expressive in a in a non-judgmental way. 
And I think that mm. that is what the arts and the culture provides for so many uh, young people. And it, it, and it shouldn't be suppressed. Wow. That adds a whole new layer to what cultural equity really means, you know, and that's validating what is right. what is at the core making so many young African-American folks of color that, you know, really have a passion for songwriting and doing all these, you know, doing the real performing arts one, too. Like, you know, it's, it's, yeah, yes, Lynn? No, the other thing that I'm thinking of, like, and listening to both of you, right, is like, Adrian, you said cultural relevance, and we use that term kind of all over the place, you know, but like, this is the, what you're talking about in terms of equitable, equitable culture and equitable, equitable oh, sorry. It's <laughs> all good. Equitably. Um, you know, when we think of what cultural relevance is in this context, can you talk a little bit more about that and how you think about it? Yes. Oh, my gosh. And thank you for the opportunity to expand on that. I, I got to tell you, I feel like we get so caught up in the hype of like these big words and especially when we're trying to be relevant, when we're trying to be do diversity work or equity work or anti-racism work, we get caught in these words like BIPOC and this and that. We're throwing these terms out and we're, we're it, to seem, I don't know if it's like to seem like we know what we're talking about and we're forgetting about the people who we're talking about. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. so it's people who they don't know, like they're like, what, what's BIPOC? We just, this is what we want for our community. So Real cultural, being really cultural relevant means that we're tapping directly into the community, who we serve and what those needs are. And we're really listening. And it's not always about the planning behind how to be culturally relevant or how to be more diverse. It's more about the execution of the work. So I can create a space, for example, I can create a space like the Ready Music Conference. And without saying we're being culturally relevant, we're just listening to the people we're serving and creating a space that exists for them that they can connect to. That's really mm -hmm. what it is. That is it's so awesome. I love the way you just wow. said that because I think you're totally right. We overthink this stuff all the time. And I think that practitioners in the field of arts and culture, arts administrators, local arts agency leaders, not everyone, but there's, but, but I think people get caught up in, in, in that like work and you just broke it down so beautifully. We yes. listen to our communities and we respond. I mean, that's it, right? That's it. <laughs> that's yeah. it. And listen, I realize it's, and I'm so appreciative of this exact conversation because I realize I can do it too. I do that too. I've gotten in a mode, especially in this new role of, because I'm in that, I'm in the arts and anti-racism work a little bit more here. And, and I love the work I'm doing, but I'm working with so many white led institutions who, who are using these terms. And most of these terms are not coming from black and brown people. I just want to be very clear, right? It's institutions or, or, or white people trying to figure out terminologies to understand the work more yeah. and so you get caught up in this rhythm of this is what it looks like and this is what it feels like and you completely forget about the people you're actually serving and speaking of and um and for me i just want to go back to connecting and just doing the work naturally by being responsive it, it's not always that complicated you know wow that's so real that's so real and the ready so the Ready Conference was funded through the state. Yes. Yep. Okay. All of the programs were funded through the state. So okay. I used tax dollars, you know, like, and this is another thing I was saying is like, 
everybody in the state of Connecticut pays tax dollars. So everyone deserves some type of program that serves them, which was why this is another reason was problematic. So essentially we use the, the money from the state legislators and um, National Endowment for the Arts, which funds um, the programs to do the, the, the all of the programs that we did under Ready. Wow, that's awesome. I, I asked that because a lot of the times the language and whatnot is uh is manipulated oftentimes for the for the funding to make sure you're actually able to do the mm. project. So I kind of have um I am kind of empathetic to folks out there who may be listening in, who may be tripping up over some words that they're putting together in their write up for so and so foundation mm. to complete their creative placemaking or whatever project they have going on. So I am sympathetic to that because that is something that overall has to change on a systemic level on the funding aspect of it all for them to be able to, you know, understand we just need to have direct responses to the people we're serving mm -hmm. as opposed to putting in the, you know, the doctorate level right. cultural relevancy responding to the measurement of these youth and whatnot, <laughs> you know? Well, so. I think that just the, honestly, the world of grant funding needs to be completely redone. I think that what funders ask for is ridiculous. Sometimes I think it's not realistic. And I also think that funding has to be more equitable in the first place. And so like processes, right? Why is it always a grant application? Why can't it be like verbally pitching? Why are we not rethinking Whoa. how the funding is um, being disseminated? Why is um, when we put place people on a panel, there's usually like one person who represents, you know, the the um, the marginalized groups, right? Why is it? There's so many problems. There's a problem with that functionality, period, right? So then you have people who apply for grants who are now they don't believe in the work anyway. So you can put. And I'm not saying everybody, but I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking, let's say we put out a grant for the READY program. We want you to be relevant, equitable, accessible, and diverse and inclusive. I may be an organization who actually doesn't believe in that, but you best believe because I want that money, I'm going to change my entire narrative to get that money. And I'm gonna, and because I have more resource, resources maybe, maybe than another organization, I got a grant writer who knows how to manipulate mm -hmm. it, and I'm going to get that money. It's a problem. This entire yeah. thing is a, is very problematic and needs to be rethought. Wow, the way I know you literally. didn't ask me that, but I just figured I was just said no. It, I mean, I think that's on everyone's minds right now, and it, it should have been a long time ago. Right, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. it. Yeah, yeah, wow. I know it's. Sorry to take it there. No, no, no. I mean, I, you know, we work, Jordan and I work for a community development organization and we have systems in place that need to, that we're looking at now and, and that the organization is saying these things need to change because they, in order to be equitable, in order to, to, to be able to serve as, or, you know, get the money yeah. out the door to the places, the people and the, and the organizations that are really doing the deep work. Things have to change. It just has to change. I mean, you can, we I talk about this a lot. You know, we talk about in the arts and culture sort of like field, you know, we talk about capacity building and organizations don't have capacity or they don't have balance mm. sheets or they don't have, you know, this, that, and the other thing, yet they've been in existence for 40 years serving community. It, 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 it totally doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I am snapping at you, Lynn. Yes. Yes, it doesn't make any sense. 
I think the reality is that people make excuses when it comes down to the specific work around justice, diversity, equity, access, and inclusion. And a lot of times the problem is we're not centering justice. We're just talking, we're just saying DEI, which is not mm -hmm. the same understanding of what justice means and which justice means really dismantling systems, which also leads to anti-racism work. And so I think that's the problem. We can't just, it's not enough anymore to just say we're gonna be more diverse. We're gonna be more inclusive. That's not enough. No, we're going to be anti-racism, I mean anti-racist, excuse me, and, and we're going to put, we're gonna centralize justice. And when you do that, you start to be able to look at things through that lens and then you're able to break down the things that you just said. You really, you're able to take accountability. But other than that, I just see excuses. You know, I just, I see excuse after excuse after excuse, which is why, um, which is why we said we were gonna do the anti-racism pledge and really be able to begin to hold people accountable. Do, wow. Do you have any advice for other local arts agencies that want to uh, take take this road and, and really start to dig into things, but may be mm -hmm. hesitant to do so? Yeah, I think for me, I would say, because I do understand that the functionality of different municipalities could be different. So I would say definitely get the buy-in from your mayor. Definitely get the support. Like, let's say you're centralized under economic, economic development the way we are. Get that support if you need it to be able to say, this is the work that I would like to do and then drive that work forward. For me, I didn't need to have those type of conversations because I was already hired through a lens that I was gonna do cultural equity. And so and so I say that because I had somebody else who was from a municipality ask me this in a similar role, ask me this yesterday. And they were like, oh, it's not as easy for us to just, we have to go through so many systems to even get an approval on what you did. And, um, and I, so I say that as a disclaimer that I know that that's there. Now, if you have free reign to do what you would like to do, my advice would be think about your level of accountability. What is your what is a, a, a municipal arts agency's level of accountability in this type of work? So when we created the anti-racism pledge, it wasn't just to hold others accountable. It was to hold ourselves accountable towards what we said we were going to center and how we said we are going to support in solidarity. So I would say do some strategic planning around this, prioritize this right away and hold yourselves accountable and just and stop having any excuses. Like that's my advice. <laughs> like, you know, it's not as, you know, I can't break it down in like a practical sense because I think it looks very different for every place. But I, I just think it has to come from a level of accountability. And I also would say, if you're a funder, if you're a municipal arts agency that funds, you should tie in this work to the funding aspect. And so anybody who does not, genuinely aligned to this work, you do not fund them. You you know, that's another way to hold accountability. You do not, you do not wow. fund them. Now, you should work with them to get them to a place where they can be fundable. But as a gatekeeper, you decide what is important. And if this work is important, just like you said, there's other people who are able to do capacity building, do this, that, and the third, do all of these other things, but not center, not center what we're talking about right now. And so I think we have a higher degree of accountability as as a, a municipal arts agency. Wow. That is... Y'all looking at me crazy. Wow. No, 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 no. <laughs> we need to write all of that in stone and have it 
plastered everywhere into all the community developers, all the artists too. <laughs> really, that is that is word that we need to take as bond as community developers and artists, arts administrators, truthfully, so we can really make this make this real progress happen. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of movement towards equity and whatnot. Sometimes we get tripped up with the language. Sometimes we get tripped up with the funding. But as long as we have folks like you in these spaces to have these conversations and be able to incept these tidbits and ideas into folks' consciousness so we're able to really, really get buy-in to these sorts of ideas, this is what needs to keep happening, honestly. So I salute you and thank you so much for all the work that you're doing, for sure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I um I want to get into <laughs> the second to last part of everything, which is the lyrics for life section. And lyrics for life is just a we're just gonna chant off a small piece of the song of a song that has been keeping us going throughout the week or the month. And it doesn't have to be the whole hook, the whole verse or anything like that. It can be just a phrase or two or three words from it or something like that. But before we sign off, we'd like to do this with our, each of our guests. And I can start off if you'd like, or you can, which... I'll go. You went first last time. Okay. All right. Cool. Okay. So my... Do I have to explain who it, it is? It's, you can do... what so, it's, it's whatever. Okay. My song is Ways by Janae Iko. I literally listen to this song all of the time and it helps me to keep going. And the lyrics are, at 44 minutes to four, an angel walked up to my door, opened the windows to my soul, told me he thinks that I should know. Life only gets harder, but you got to get stronger. This is for my brother. I do this for my daughter. That's why I keep going. That's why I keep going. I got to keep going. That yeah. is I see how that resonates for <laughs> it sure. It resonates. Sure. Yes, yes. I love, I was listening to her song, uh, I Don't Need You, I Don't Need You, I Don't Need You. <laughs> I love her. I just love her music. Yes, her voice is so sweet. So, so sweet. calming. All right. So I, um, this, this song that I've been listening to is by 21 Savage. It's called Ball Without You. And the lyrics are really, really, I don't know, they they connect with me in a in a on a new level. So this is what he says. I'd rather have loyalty than love, because love really don't mean jack. See, love is just a feeling. You can love somebody and still stab them in their back. It don't take much to love. You can love somebody just by being attached. See, loyalty is an action. You can love or hate me and still have my back. Mm. I love that. Was, when he said, I was like, oh my gosh, 21. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that really, really resonates with me. I don't, I've had some falling outs with some close friends of mine from back in the day recently. And it's just so interesting how people can oh, just no. go left on you. Oh, it's yeah, okay. It's okay. I still love them from a distance, but I'm glad God cleared the path for me to see the light. Amen. So, <laughs> <laughs> so nevertheless, I appreciate you for joining us with that section. And 
you know, we've come to the end of this podcast, and I know I feel bad that it's ending as it well. Went so, fast. so we have to we have to keep yeah the hour went by fast, but we have to keep these conversations going. Let's stay in contact afterwards, and I always I always tell Lynn like we should probably do a check back in like later on with the folks that we interviewed for our season one so hopefully we get that going as well and if not we're still going to be in contact regardless thank you adrian thank you so much for joining us today thank you both i appreciate you for having me this was this was so much fun awesome (laughs) it was fun for us too thank you thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your week you too bye This podcast was produced by Local Initiative Support Corporation, LISC, a national community development organization working in rural and urban areas across the country. For more information on LISC, please visit our website at LISC.org. The podcast was also produced with support from the National Endowment for the Arts, an independent federal agency that funds, promotes, and strengthens creative capacities of our communities providing all Americans with diverse opportunities for arts participation and additional support from the Kresge Foundation. Thanks again for joining us and have an excellent day.